Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Here we are for our mimosas and Mary, and the first and most important thing we're going to do is raise our glasses to our mothers, and, uh, and everyone, may God bless you. Thank you on behalf of all of the men here at the Institute of Catholic Culture, those who could join us and those who are absent for honorable reasons. We lift our glasses to not only the physical mothers around us, but our spiritual mothers also. Every single lady who has shared the gift of Jesus with those around you, may God bless you and may God grant you many years. All right. Having shared the gift of Jesus with those around us, we got to dive into our subject here, guys, um, regarding Mary. And we're going to do so by way of a title that she is given. A title which, uh, while quite famous in the early church, has somehow, sadly, in some quarters, uh, kind of fallen out of use. And I think that today, here at the Institute of Catholic Culture, we can just put it right back into use. It's certainly a title or an idea that you're familiar with, but maybe haven't had a chance to really dive in too much. And that is Mary the Second Eve, or Mary the New Eve. There was, in the ninth century, a uh, young lady who lived in the city of Constantinople. Her name was Cassiani, and she was, by all accounts, absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. And she came from a well-respected family, and she was not only drop-dead gorgeous, she was brilliant. Yes, so there's St. Cassiani. Jen's holding up St. Cassiani right now. Yeah, so this is the icon of St. Cassiani. There she is. And um, notice, and Jen, I'm going to ask you to, to talk in a second so that it pops back up on their screen. But uh, notice she's writing because she became a nun and a great poet. And she wrote hymns, many hymns to, to Christ. It's very famous hymns, okay? I'm just going to share a little story about her because... She lived in a time during the reign of the bachelor emperor Theophilus. Theophilus decided that he was going to get married. And he decided that he would choose his bride by having something of a bridal show. And he commanded that all of the single, young, beautiful women of the empire be rounded up like cattle and brought before him that he might choose the one he found to be most beautiful and the day of the show came and and theophilus came out among the people and among the ladies with a golden apple in his hand and he said the young lady that i give this to will be my bride he walked up and down the uh, ranks of the 
young ladies, until he came to St. Cassiani. He was so struck by her beauty that he stopped in his tracks, not looking to go further to see other options. He took out the golden apple and he placed it in her hand. And he said, it was by a woman that sin came into the world. Well, as I said, St. Cassiani was not only beautiful, she was also bright. She took the golden apple and placed it back in the emperor's hand. And he, she said these words, yes, and it was by a woman that salvation came to mankind. Theophilus, having been bested, turned around and walked away and chose another bride. St. Cassiani retired to a monastery and lived her life in seclusion with her groom, Jesus. This tradition of Mary and seeing her in relationship and in contrast to our first mother is a tradition which goes back to the earliest days of the church. And in your handout, if you have it, if you don't, you can just listen. Cardinal Jean Henry Newman says this. In that awful transaction, there were three parties concerned. The serpent, the woman, and the man. And at the time of their sentence, an event was announced for the future, in which the three same parties would, were to meet again. The serpent, the woman, and the man. But it was to be a second Adam and a second Eve. And the new Eve was to be the mother of the new Adam. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. The seed of the woman is the word incarnate. And the woman whose seed or son he is, is his mother Mary. This interpretation and the parallelism it involves seems to me undeniable. But at all events, and this is my point, the parallelism is the doctrine of the fathers from the earliest times. And this being established, we are able, by the position and office of Eve in our fall, to determine the position and office of Mary in our restoration. Okay, there it is. We are able, by the position and office of Eve in the fall, to determine the position office of Mary in our restoration. Now, I have a, a book in front of me by Cardinal Jean Danielou. Cardinal Jean Danielou is a patristic scholar. He's reposed in the Lord now, but a famous patristic scholar. And um, in his book, The Bible and the Liturgy, if anybody really wants to get serious about studying you absolutely have to have this book on your shelf, okay? It's falling apart. Okay, I just taped it up because it's been the, the covers have been coming off for too long. This book opened up, I would say, if I say points in my, in, my, in, my, in my walk with Christ, this book turned a corner. It's called The Bible and the Liturgy. If you love the Bible and you love the liturgy, this is the book for you. Now, he's commenting and writing about the mysteries of the church 
prior to Vatican II. And so as commentary on the liturgy has to do with the, with the services as they were served and as groups like the Fraternity of St. Peter's and others serve them today, nevertheless, extremely valuable for all of us, regardless of whether you go to the traditional Latin mass or not, and extremely insightful also for the Byzantine tradition, because it goes back to the theology and thought of the fathers of the church, which give voice to the conscience of the early church. Okay, he says this, that the realities of the Old Testament are figures of those of the new is one of the principles of biblical theology. This science of similitudes between the two testaments is called typology. And here we do well to remind ourselves of its foundation. For this is to be found in the Old Testament itself. At the time of the Babylonian captivity, the prophets announced to the people of Israel that in the future God would perform for their benefit deeds analogous to and even greater than those he had performed in the past. Okay? So the fathers of the church and following upon biblical revelation began to understand the work of Christ in terms, as I've talked about before, not so much a band-aid to solve a problem, but as restoration of God's original plan. I return then to Cardinal Newman. We can determine by the role of Eve in our fall, we can determine the role of Mary in our redemption. It's essential then to understand, to make sure we understand quite clearly, according to the thought of the fathers, what that role of Eve was in the fall. Because it is only in understanding her role in the fall that we are going to be able to have deep insight into why Mary is described the way she is in the New Testament. We know that, uh, that Eve, in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 20, our first mother is named. She's given the name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Now, the fathers of the church, you have your Bibles open, you have right in front of you, the whole Bible is like this, but there's no text more, more important to, to understand this way. When you look at chapter two and chapter three in your Bible, it should be a picture for you. It should be jumping out at you. You should be able to identify on the page, this happened, this happened, and this happened. It's laid out, and I'm going to describe it for you. It's laid out for you to memorize. And you should have it noted. I'm going to show you my, my this isn't just show you, oh, Father God's Christ is so serious about his Bible. It's not that at all. And it's, I wasn't crossing things out, by the way, that I didn't like. I was actually, I was just making connections between things in my Bible because this, my brothers and sisters, is a piece of art written by Moses for the salvation of the world. Nothing is there by accident, and nothing is there in a haphazard way. It is one of the greatest pieces of art that has ever been written in the history of mankind, and it should be studied as a piece of art. So let's study it in that way. We see in Genesis chapter 2, the creation of Eve from the side of Adam. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs 
and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You shall be, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Let me ask you guys a question. I'm going to stop right here. You got to take yourselves off a of mute. What day of creation is this story taking place on? The, the fathers of the church say the, the, the creation narrative is given to us. This is not my notes. I'm just going to get this is like for free. Okay. I'm not going to charge for this one. The first creation account, which is given to in Genesis uh, chapter one, finishes in Genesis chapter two at the very beginning, which is day seven, right? So it, on day six, Adam and Eve were created. And day seven is the day that God rests. But St. Ephraim says that, yes, Adam and Eve were created on the sixth day. But Adam was created first according to the second account. And then he slept. And therefore, St. Ephraim says that when Adam and Eve woke up and Adam beheld the face of his bride, that day was the seventh day. The first full day for Eve and the second full day for Adam. Okay. And St. Ephraim says that when the Lord placed this sleep upon Adam, he did so in a way not to make him unconscious, unconscious, unable to see, but rather he entered Adam into the divine sleep. Similar. Remember when, when uh, the, the apostles were taken on Mount Tabor for the transfiguration? Okay, it says they became heavy with sleep. This happened over and over again in the, in the Bible. That when you enter into the rest of God, you don't go out of existence or unable to know. Rather, you see more clearly what has taken place, which is the reason why when Adam woke up and he opened his eyes, he said, bone of my bone, because he saw what the Lord had done to him. And he knew who she was. You see that? Waking up then on the seventh day, it's important to understand that the number seven in Hebrew shares a common root with the word for covenant. Okay? The seventh day, the reason why this, the, 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 the creation account is described in seven days is to tell us that God is creating with a covenant relationship. A covenant joins two parties as one. Yes, the two become one flesh. Not by accident that this union is described in that way, because this is the union which Adam and Eve were meant for on that seventh day in the image and likeness of the one who is covenanting himself to us on that seventh day. You see that? On that day of the seventh day, when God rested and we were welcomed into that rest, we were meant to worship the Lord and be made one with him and one with one another. It was the great marriage day of creation. But of course, on that great marriage day, something else took place. Because rather than Adam and Eve worshiping the Lord and being joined together in a relationship, right here at this moment that you would have expected, seriously, when you're reading this text, what would you have expected next? Come on, here you are, the man, Adam, opens his eyes, he sees his bride. Yeah? Now, mm -hmm. Eve wasn't just, I mean, look, this is like the fallen Eve. You want to talk about Cassia and Eve being beautiful. Eve was beautiful. 
and he sees her. And what would we expect him next? What would be the next verse? Therefore, a man leaves his father, and they become one flesh, and the man and his wife were naked, and they were not ashamed, and they had children. The two shall become one flesh, and the result of that union should be the very next thing we hear, right? They entered into this covenant union with each other. The two became one flesh, and children were born of them. But this is not what we hear. Don't let the chapter breaks in your Bible stop you, okay? They were put in there by some medieval monk. They decided to put him in there, but they're not original to the text, and they stop you from reading. Don't let them stop you from reading because they make you stumble and fall. You see? They won't be able to let you read the, the thread. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other creature that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God say to you, do not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, do you see the moment when you had expected a, a divine conversation, huh? the worship of Adam and Eve with God, and a divine conversation between a husband and a wife? Instead, in the thread of Genesis, on the great marriage day of creation, instead of speaking with one another, Eve is found speaking with a serpent. St. John Chrysostom says, what are you doing, woman? What are you doing speaking with the serpent? For you should have been speaking with the one for whom you were made and with whom you shared all things on equal terms. And in that moment of the ill-advised and illicit conversation, rather than being joined to her husband, the great divorce began to take place. St. Ephraim says, at this moment, Eve took the fruit, and she ate first, and then she gave some to her husband, so that in eating first, she might become head over her head, and older in divinity than the one who was older than her in humanity. Look at this, my brothers and sisters. That's why I love the church fathers. This is stuff you don't pick up reading just on your own. Look at this, chapter 3, verse 5. And God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. And St. Ephraim also says, he said, wait a minute. She should have known he was a liar because they're already made in the image and likeness of God. So by his very word, she should have said, you're a liar. But she didn't. Knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband, and he ate. The fathers of the church say in this moment, Eve ate alone so that she might be raised up, and the tables turned. The whole of the story of the fall and that of the following curses follows a pattern which will are designed by Moses to make you and help you memorize this text. The devil tempted Eve, and Eve tempted Adam. God spoke with Adam, and Adam blamed Eve, and Eve blamed the serpent. God cursed the serpent, then God cursed Adam, and then God cursed Eve. He goes, the whole thing is a is a is a back and forth, um, like a, a a stepping, right? It steps like this and it goes backwards and back. You can see that in your Bible right here. Okay. 
The serpent in chapter 3, verse 1, tempts Eve. Then in verse 6, the woman saw the tree was good, and she feeds her husband. Then they heard the Lord God walking in verse 8, and the Lord speaks with Adam. Adam blames his wife, and Eve blames the serpent. Then in verse 14, God curses the serpent. Then he curses Eve in verse 16, and then curses Adam. There, I got them all mixed up at the end there, but that's what it is right there in your Bibles. Okay, do you see that? And it's put there to help you memorize this text so that you will know the role and place of the woman in the fall. And through that, you might come to know the role and place of the woman in our restoration. St. Justin says this. St. Justin is like super early. Look at this. 120 to 165, okay? John the Evangelist just died. So don't think this is some medieval accretion or late development. St. Justin and the following guys are going to give testimony to something that's already known. This was what's great about this, and this is what Newman points out. He says, I'm sorry, but when you have Justin, Tertullian, and Irenaeus all writing from three different parts of the known world without cell phones, all writing at the same time, it is evidence that this is a tradition which goes back before them and is received by them. But the problem is, that's not a problem, it's a gift. If you go before them, you hit the, the apostolic age. Do you see that? This is a tradition which goes back to the apostles themselves. I'm going to pick up the quote halfway through. For Eve, being a virgin and undefiled, conceiving the word that was from the serpent. Notice, stop for a second. Notice this word, conceived the word. So important because we're going to talk about Mary in a second. Conceived the word that was from the serpent, brought forth disobedience and death. But the Virgin Mary taking faith and joy, when the angel told her the good tidings, planted it in her ear, that the spirit of the Lord should come upon her and the power of the high most should overshadow her. Therefore, the Holy One that was born of her was the Son of God answered, be it done unto me according to thy word. Tertullian, to the next text here. God recovered his image and likeness, which the devil had seized by a rival operation. For into Eve as yet a virgin had crept the word, which was the framer of death. Equally into a virgin was to be introduced the word of God, which was the builder up of life. That what by, the, by that sex had gone into perdition, by the same sex might be brought back to salvation. Eve had believed the serpent. Mary believed Gabriel. The fault which the one committed by believing the other, by believing the other, by believing has blotted out. Okay. And the third text I want to look at is St. Irenaeus. I'm going to skip the first one, which is quite long, and go to St. Irenaeus' second text if you have the handout. As Eve, by the speech of an angel, was seduced so as to flee God, transgressing his word, so also Mary received the good tidings by means of the angel's speech. So as to bear God within her, being obedient to his word, and though the one had disobeyed God, yet the other was drawn to obey God, that of the Virgin Eve, the Virgin Mary might become the advocate. And as by a virgin, the human race had gone, bound to death by a virgin, it is saved. 
the balance being preserved of virgin's disobedience by a virgin's obedience. Huh? Isn't that beautiful? We're talking, of course, about the great mystery of the Annunciation. When the ga angel Gabriel appears to the mother of God. But there's another and a final course that we might take. And we'll study this as we come to a, a conclusion of our, of our short study together today. All right. And that course is found in John's gospel. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles over to the gospel of John. John's gospel is written for us in such a way that we should be reading it in the context of none other than the creation story of Genesis. And I know that because of John's first words and a theme which is developed in his first two chapters, which most people don't realize. But I'm going to share it with you. And what's so cool about this right now, what you're about to see, is something that John put into his gospel that is like, like hidden words. Like if you're, if I ask you, have you ever, how many of you have read the gospel of John? Come on, raise your hand. Yeah. What I'm going to tell you is that there's something, John actually wrote more than you think. And after 2,000 years, he has something to tell you that he wrote in his gospel, but you never saw. He begins his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was made nothing that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness could not comprehend it. You remember in the story of Genesis in the creation account, we begin the same words in the beginning. And the first thing that God created was light. And the light shined in the darkness and the darkness could not comprehend it. Evening and morning the first day. Here John places for us at the beginning of his gospel, the first day of creation, like a stop sign. I always read this. John's reading that writing is he's got like this big stop sign right at the beginning of his gospel. He said, look, if you don't know the story of creation, if you don't have it in front of you, don't keep writing my gospel because you're not going to understand it. It's only in that context that you can read John to realize that the true light of the world is coming. The true light of the world, which is going to enlighten not only the, this kind of created or this, 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 this world, but enlighten the soul of man himself. And that light is going to shine in the darkness, and the darkness is not going to be able to comprehend it. Because he's going to enter into the darkness itself and destroy its very nature when he enters into the tomb. But John goes further. He doesn't just hold us in day one. On day one in Genesis, which John is certainly pointing to, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word spoke, and light came in, right? Day one of Genesis. Then... Come to verse 29 with me. What are the first words, Consuelo, you read? Do you have your Bible in front of you, Consuelo? What are the first words you read? The first three words. The next day. Now look at verse 35. Go ahead, Consuelo. The next day. Okay. <laughs> verse 43. The next day. Okay, you just, again, this is not by accident, okay? Mm -hmm. How many days is that, Consuelo? Four Cons days. And chapter Four. 2, verse 1? On the third day. One, two, three. How many, Consuelo? Seven days. <laughs> and on the seventh day, there is a marriage feast. And on that marriage feast, the wedding party fails. 
the groom fails to provide for his bride and the woman steps in. And does she take on her own, Consuelo? No. She comes to the one who should have fed her in the beginning rather than her feeding him. And rather than trying to become head over her head, she begs him to do what the first Adam had failed to do. That is provide for the marriage feast. Many people would look at this exchange when it comes to a um, to a conclusion here. Many people would look at this exchange and say that Jesus, in his exchange with Mary, kind of rejects her. Right. Verse three: When the wine had failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, "They have no wine." And Jesus said to her, woman, what have you to do with me? Or what has this to do with me? Look, I'm going to stop for a second, guys. This is not in my notes, but another free one, okay? All right. When you come across something in the Bible that just kind of doesn't seem to jive right with your Catholic sensibilities, you know, you're like, oh, I don't know. Jesus shouldn't be so mean to the mother of God. I mean, we're supposed to respect her, you know? What's he doing putting her down? It, it offends your Catholic sensibilities, right? What well, offends your Catholic sensibilities for good reason. Because the, 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 the language Jesus uses here in the Greek of John is very difficult to translate because it is a Hebrew idiom, a way of speech, which means more than the words themselves. But when the translators come in to translate, they have a hard time with it because it's difficult to translate an idiom. And the way you know this is if you're good Bible students, and you should have this all the time in front of you, you should have as your Bible, your Bible desk, you should have about 10 different versions of your Bible. Okay? You got to have the old trusty Douay Reams. You got to have the, the new American. You got in the middle, I got the RSV. You might even pull, you know, I even have a couple Protestant translations. Okay? You never know what these guys are going to come up with. And you should have a Greek text. If you know a little bit of Greek, it's helpful. And maybe the Latin Vulgate. Look, I'm not a biblical scholar, but I know something that when I read four or five different translations of the same verse, and they're so all over the place, that something's fishy. And sure enough, something's fishy about this text. And what's fishy about it is that Jesus is not rejecting his mother, quite the contrary. And we know that, we know that by going back to the Old Testament, because this similar phraseology was used oftentimes in the Old Testament. Jerome translates it in the Latin Vulgate, I think the best. He said, quid me et tibi est mulier. What woman to you and to me? Uh, a little broken English there, but that's what he says in Latin. What to you and to me? Hmm? What is this between us, Mary? Now, do a favor for me. Go back to the book of Genesis. To Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. 
and I will make my covenant. Listen, a covenant is the two becoming one flesh. Yes. I will make my covenant between me and you. Sound familiar? Mary, what is this between me and you? Look at Genesis chapter 9. I think it's Genesis chapter 9, verse 12, to Noah. Okay, to Noah at the time of the flood. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you. Look at Genesis chapter 23. I love that this is this is the gem, this is the gem right here. You know what's going on here? Look, look at chapter 23, verse 1. This is Abraham and his wife Sarah dies. And Abraham wants to find a place to bury Sarah. So he goes, he's still establishing himself in the land. He goes to a guy named Ephron the Hittite. Ephron the Hittite's got the best cave to bury his wife. So Abram goes to Ephron. He says, Ephron, I want to buy that cave from you so that I can bury my wife there. Look at this. Verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites. Of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I will give you the field. And give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you, Abraham. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. He said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land. But if you will hear me, Ephron. I will give you the price of the field. Accept it from me. He's holding, look, I stopped. He's holding the gold in his hand, right? He's, he's ready to pay. He's going to buy the Cadillac. Okay? He's ready. So the hand in his, right there. Accept it from me, that I might bury my dead there. And Ephraim answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? Oh, time out, Catholics. Woo! We got Abraham and Ephron using the exact same language that Jesus used in regard to his mother. Now, listen to me. Stop reading for a second. If this language is meant to be a rejection, which is how we usually read it regarding Jesus and the mother of God, right? What is this between me and you? Leave it. It's my time as a, I'm not, why are you bothering me? I'm having a party with my friends, mom. If it is meant to be a rejection, then... When Ephron rejects him with the same words that Jesus uses, Abraham would not deal out the money because the agreement has been broken. Am I right? My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth a 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? Bury your dead. And Abraham agreed with Ephron. Stop, because that's the point right there. He agrees with Ephron. If you're reading it like this, you have to say he agrees with him. Therefore, he's not going to give him the money. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver, which he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels, according to the weigh current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was in the east, and Mamre, the field of the cave, which was in the land, and all they become Abraham's. You understand my point? The language that Jesus uses when the new Eve comes to her 
and ask that he provide for her rather than take on her own and trying to become head over her head. The language Jesus uses is a Hebrew idiom of covenant agreement. Now come back to me with John very quickly. Not covenant rejection, but covenant agreement. John chapter 2, verse 4. And Jesus said to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? Or what is this literally between me and you? My hour has not yet come. And his mother, hearing him use this language, turned on her heels to the servant and says, do whatever he tells you. Because she knows that the words he just used can be translated best as yes. I am going to act as you request, just as Abraham acted at the request of Ephron. And the two become one flesh. Let us conclude with a quotation from St. Peter Chrysologus. Back here in your nice little handout we have. We'll use this as our concluding prayer. Those that can stay around and want to do a little short, are we going to do a little short Q&A? As long as we have enough mimosa, okay? Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Blessed art thou among women, for among women on whose womb Eve, who was cursed, brought punishment. Mary, being blessed, rejoices, is honored, and is looked up to. And women, a woman now is truly made through grace the mother of the living, who had been by nature the mother of the dying. Heaven feels awe of God. Angels tremble at him. The creature sustains him not. Nature su suffices not. And yet one maiden so takes, receives, entertains him as a guest within her breast that for the very hire of her home and as the price of her womb, she asks and she obtains peace for the earth, glory for the heavens, salvation for the lost, life for the dead, a heavenly parentage for the earthly, the union of God himself with human flesh. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you all for uh, participating today. A blessed and, and joy-filled Mother's Day for all of you who have been restored to your proper role in creation as the bearers of salvation. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. And when society wants to tear you down and say that somehow you're less or you're this or you're that, the mother of God has restored you to your proper role, and that is the mother of all the living. And may God bless you and thank you for the gift of life which you have given to all of us. Okay, I really appreciated what you were saying, Father, about um, what have you to do with me. But then why does he say my hour has not yet come? Yeah, there's, this is a very good question. This hour of Jesus in the Gospel of John um, is, uh, is, is his hour of his passion. Okay? He's always talking about his hour. However, um, there is a, another way that this can be translated. 
Um, and, at, and that is as a question, because in the original text, the, the you know, our question marks and commas are not in there, okay? Um, and I honestly believe in reading this gospel and studying it, um, that this line should be placed as a question, um, as a rhetorical question, because of the exchange of how it's said. What is this between me and you? And then this strange line, has my hour has not yet come? She clearly reading him as accepting her request, turns around and says, what, do this. From this moment in the gospel of John, the entire gospel is like a spiral. It's a spiral towards the cross. And I think that this, this, this statement should be translated as a question. Has my hour not yet come? Mary, don't you realize that it is at this moment at the marriage feast that Adam failed to provide for his wife and that Eve turned to the serpent? When you're reading the Gospel of John, it is from this moment forward that the whole gospel will literally drive to the cross. Very different than the, than the, than the synoptic gospels in which he's going to go up to uh, Galilee. He's going to travel around. He's going to do these things. No, it is a beeline from here on out. Okay. I, um, we should do a gospel of John study at the institute. We did it like years and years and years ago, but it was too long. And it, I think it only got, I only got to like chapter six after like three months and I just gave up. So, but, uh, but, I, I, that's what I would say, Melanie, is that it's really at this moment, literally at the moment that he says, yes, what is this, right? Using this, at this moment, the devil begins to attack because it's at this moment that he stands between the serpent and his bride. It's at this moment that the cross comes into view because that battle, which begins at this moment, will only be completed on the cross. Okay. Any other questions coming in? Yeah, so Kelsey and I were talking, Father, and my my reading somewhere was that in the Hebrew or the Greek, that the, that the word they used for a woman in this instance in John's gospel is the same that they use at the creation story. And the question is, is that the only place or um, is that used anywhere else in the Bible? Where else is it used? Come on. Where else, guys? Where else is Mary called the woman? That's right, exactly. John specifically uses the name, this word used for Eve in two places, at the moment of the wedding and at the moment in which he sacrifices himself for her. We're talking here about uh, women and we're talking about uh, uh, Mary. I mean, uh, what what about the new Eve? I mean, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? And Mary is the new Eve because she reverses and does what the old Eve, the not that the old Eve tied the new Eve undid. I didn't so, hear those specific words. So, but uh, yeah, but yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. The new Eve. No, this, I listen, guys, here's, I'm not, okay, I'm going to leave you with this. And we can get back to Mother's Day, okay? So here's, here's what you have to, re, but how it just, just sink into your head. And that is that God's plan in the beginning and what Jesus accomplished is, 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 is the same reality. Jesus saves us from the fall. He comes to give us back his original plan, which is why he feeds us that we might eat and live forever. Yes, the tree of life in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. 
there's uh, we don't receive the Eucharist in the church by like by accident. No, he comes to, to restore this created order, huh? bread and wine and oil and water, their original purpose. It was water which flowed out of paradise and watered the trees from which the tree of life grew and from which we were to eat and live forever. The whole sacramental system of the church is God's original plan in paradise. The church is the garden of Eden restored in flesh, in us, in the original community, which God made in the image and likeness of the community of the Holy Trinity, which lives a life of love from all eternity. And in that image and likeness, we are made and called to love one another, to give our lives for one another. Which is why Jesus says the mark of the Christian is that you love one another. And the mark of the Christian isn't the big fancy church on the corner. The mark of the Christian isn't Father Hezekiah's big silver shiny cross from the Ukraine. The mark of the Christian is our love for one another. Because that love is the, is the gift of God's life for us. Marriage is meant to be... You know, I, I was talking with somebody the other day. You know, we use this thing. The two per ends of marriage are unitive and procreative. Uh, we've heard this before. Some of you have been studying theology, yeah? And this is an inadequate definition. Because the first and primary purpose of marriage is revelation. Revelation of the love of the Trinity. And it's only in that truth only in that union, which we can then begin to live the life of God, which pours forth into creation as it pours forth out of marriage into children and into the friends of those around them. You see, this is, this is revelatory because we are made in the image and likeness of God so that this whole created order might be transformed by our love for one another. As if we are transformed by God's love for us. The theology isn't too heavy duty. It's not heavy stuff. It's very simple. God is love. You're made in his image and likeness, and therefore you're made to love. That's it. You want to know what the priest does at the altar? He loves a piece of bread into existence the way it's supposed to be. Not just for the nourishment of your body, but for the nourishment of your soul. That's why bread was made. That's why water was given to us. Not that I can just solve the thirsty problem, but water was given us to us to solve the thirstiness of our soul. It was made for baptism. All right. God bless you guys. And uh, a happy Mother's Day. Please pray for uh, our mothers here at the Institute of Catholic Culture. And ask also for my prayers for my own mother who passed away when I was nine years old. I look forward one day because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I look forward to that day when I can see my mom again, and I can give her a big hug that I didn't give, get to give her when she died, and to be able to say, I love you, mom, and then to be able to hold her hand again, and to walk together again. So please, I ask you to pray for my mom, Sheila, that God have mercy on her soul, he have mercy on me too, that we can be joined together again in his love. May God bless you, love you all, and a happy Mother's Day to you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org 
or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.